Okay. Come on. Yep. Um, we are finishing up our Transform series, and we are very grateful for Colette for illustrating transformation for us every week through these videos. And I hope some of you have been uh, attempting these and maybe being a little more successful than Mike and I were when we uh, made that video a couple weeks ago. But uh, anyway, um, right now, before we get into our message for this week, uh, children are dismissed for Children's Church. So if those children who want to uh, head back for Sunday school, it's that way. Okay, now today we are uh, finishing this series, Transformed, How God Changes Us. And our hope is that uh, we have all learned some things about these seven areas of our lives that God really wants to make healthy. So first thing is, how many of the seven can you guys remember offhand? We're going to see if we can hear them all. So just shout them out if you remember them. If, if you can remember them in order, that would be awesome. Mental health, emotional health, physical health, spiritual health, financial, relational, and vocational, which is today. Yes, very good. You guys got them all. So um, those are our seven areas of, uh, of a healthy life that we have talked about in this series. And when you look at this list and think about the things that we've talked about, what strikes you about that list? I'll tell you what, what really strikes me about it is that it is a very broad swath of our lives that we have covered here, right? And... and uh, <clears throat> These seven areas really cover uh, most of life. And that's important because sometimes we think uh, that uh, God really only cares about the first one on the list, right? God cares about your spiritual health, and then that's pretty much where he's really interested. And yeah, maybe we think that uh, your Christianity or religion has some effect on these other areas, but primarily the main thing is just your spiritual health. And, and that's part of a mindset that we sometimes get into that divides our lives into these different categories that are separate from one another and don't really influence each other. You've got your family life and your work life and your spiritual life and that they're, they're separate things. Um, or, or a lot of times we get into this idea that we have two categories in our life. We have the sacred and the secular. Right? And so the sacred part of our life, yeah, that's, that's where God is involved. And then we have the secular part of our life where we do other things that, that aren't really affected by our faith. Um, but one of the big ideas of this whole series that we've been covering here is that this way of thinking does not fit with the teaching of the Bible. The God of the Bible refuses to be segregated off into only one part of your life. God is interested in all of you, not just in your religious worship. God is not only interested in your spiritual health, he also wants to transform you in your physical health and in your emotional health and your mental health and your relational health and your financial health and even in your work life and your vocational health. And those are just the things we covered in the series. It's not an exhaustive list of God's interest in you, right? God is interested in every part of you. 
And if you can think of other parts of your life that aren't included in this list, God wants to transform those parts of your life too. Because God wants to be involved in your whole life. And there is no part of you that is uninteresting to God. Now, if we think about that, that can actually sound a little bit scary. There's nowhere you can go. Nothing that God is not uh, uh, involved in. He's intruding into every corner of your life. But it's not scary if we really think about it because because God uh, is doing this for our own great benefit, right? Because when we try to run our own lives apart from God, we often really mess it up. We often do things that we think will lead to a good life, and they don't. They lead to brokenness and suffering. But God knows what is best for you, and God wants what is best for you. He wants you to be truly happy and satisfied and healthy in every part of your life. Because, see, God loves you, and He wants to help you, and He wants to transform you in ways that will result in a better life for you. And so I hope you've been thinking as we've gone through this series about the various ways uh, and the various areas of your life that God wants to be working on. So I know a lot of you got these books. I think we, we uh, bought over 100 of these things, so a lot of you have got these. And I hope that you've been, uh, as you've been reading the daily devotionals and taking notes in the sermons and doing all these things, and hopefully in a journey group where you've been listening to Pastor Rick's teaching and, and discussing this stuff, um, I hope as you've been doing all that, that you've set goals uh, Pastor Mike was just mentioning how one of, his, how one of his goals has really been helpful for him so far in this uh, period. But if the thing about the setting of the goals, which is uh, there's a page in here, you know, there's a couple of pages that talk about it, and then there's a page where the goals are, are listed. You have my three-month goals. And see, I've, I actually have a couple of blanks where I didn't get a goal written in a couple of weeks, but I've got most of them written in there. I need to go back and get those other ones. But if you haven't done that yet... I encourage you to do it today because if you set a goal and if you write it down and maybe even share it with somebody, your chances of actually doing it are much, much higher. If all you do is think about, oh yeah, that would be good to have some transformation in my relational life, not much is going to happen. But if you think about it, you set a goal and you write the goal down and you keep that goal in front of you for three months, these are three-month goals time-bound, and um, that's going to be your best bet for God to really be working in your life in those areas and to really see some transformation. So I really encourage you to, to get those goals written in there. If you don't have the book, that's okay. Just think about goals for these seven areas and write them down. So our final area of life that God wants to transform yeah, that we are looking at today is our vocational life which means that God wants to transform the way that we work. He wants to transform our approach to work. And there's two big ideas that uh, we want to get across today that that I want to make sure that everybody gets. In seminary, they say, have a three-point sermon. Rick Warren says he likes one-point sermons, um, but we're doing two points today. So there's two points to this sermon. First one is, 
Work is an important part of what you were created for. And then the second point is why you do your work is more important than what you do. So we'll talk about both of those. First one first. Um, see, sometimes we get the idea that the work uh, is a necessary evil, right? It's something that we have to do in order to pay the bills for the other things that we want to do. So we, we, uh, it's something we have to do and not something that, that we want, or, or, but we do it because it's good for us. Um, the benefit of work in this mindset is that it makes it possible for us to live, but work itself is not actually something that we want. And in our modern society, that often comes in the form of the idea that we just work for a paycheck. Right? I just go to work so I can get a paycheck. That's all I want out of that. And that makes the rest of my life possible. We have to pay the mortgage. We have to buy groceries. And so we go to work to pay the bills. But that is not a biblical view of work. The Bible teaches that work is an important part of what you were created for. And some of the Christians who, who know something about the biblical story in creation uh, know that in Genesis 3, uh, after Adam and Eve fell into sin, God said to them, he said, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you eat food from it for the rest of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground. And that really makes it sound like Work is part of the curse that, uh, that was uh, given to uh, people after they fell into sin. But if we take a closer look at what the Bible tells us about life before people fell into sin, um, we will see that work was always part of what God created us for. We see that in Genesis chapter 2 where it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. So right in the very beginning, right after God created people, he took them and he put them in the Garden of Eden. And why were they there? They were there to work. Um, the description of the garden, you know, combined with what we just saw about how uh, after they sinned, God made it hard for them, we combine those things and we get the impression that the work was pretty good in the garden, right? It wasn't too difficult. It produced a lot of uh, what they were wanting and, and it was easy, productive, enjoyable work. But still, the point is that they were working in the garden right from the very beginning before sin entered the world. And we also see that same idea in Genesis chapter 1. Um, that God had in mind for his people to expand even beyond the Garden of Eden uh, and, and continue their work in the rest of the world too. So Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, very key verse um, here. It says, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Theologians refer to this uh, verse as the creation mandate, when God gave people a mandate of what he wanted them to do. And it's a very broad mandate for people to do all kinds of work all over the world. 
So let's look at that a little bit more closely. It says, be fruitful and increase in number. Obviously, that includes having children, um, which, by the way, Wes and Aubrey Burgess had a baby this week, if you didn't hear about that yet. So uh, brand new little Burgess baby. Um, but also, it includes uh, all kinds of fruit. Being fruitful is all kinds of productivity. Um, and then it says, fill the earth and subdue it. And that part, that, that's big. God does not want people to stay in the Garden of Eden or even on that continent. He wants them to migrate all over the planet, occupying all the great lands that he created for us. And as we go, we are to subdue the earth and rule over it. So on the one hand, that's clear authority to use the resources that the earth offers us and to learn to harness the energy of the oxen and the horses and, and the flowing water and burning wood and fossil fuels and, and mining and processing ore to make iron and steel and, and, and harnessing the power of the wind to sail ships and the power of solar energy and all these kinds of ways that we fill the earth and subdue it. God wants us to use the resources that he has provided for us so to create flourishing uh, human societies. And of course, but people started out with no technology and no understanding of how to do any of those things. Right? And I, I figure that's probably why God put them in a Garden of Eden first, right? Where things were a little easier and they could slowly develop and expand outward from there into places that were a little more difficult to, uh, to live and thrive. But through the use of their creativity and ingenuity and diligence that God gave to people, um, that was part of being made in his image. And he wants us to be out using all those things to fill the earth and subdue it. But, but just think about that for a minute, though. Because God put people into the earth in its wild, untamed, unsubdued form and left it up to us to figure out how to tame it and subdue it. So why didn't God make the coast of Italy so that it already looked like this? Right? Wouldn't it have been great if you were one of those early explorers going down to the coast and you find, oh, look at this, a perfect village, let's move in. Boats are already floating in the water there. This is great. Um, bridges, roads, everything's already there. Or why didn't God create little towns in the Swiss Alps? So that when the people went up into the mountains, they would find this beautiful place and they could just settle in there and flourish in a place that was already developed for them. Or why didn't God create beautiful bridges so that when the explorers reached big rivers, they could just easily cross over them and go back and forth and, and, uh, and, and all that? Instead, God left it to us to slowly develop the technology over many centuries to build bridges like this. Why? That's a real question. Why? Uh, you know, God certainly could have built this bridge or those villages or all kinds of things he could have made for us. He could have had roads going everywhere that we wanted to go. But the creation mandate was work. And it is work. 
We are not done at all. God gave us work to do and it, because it is an important part of what he created us for. We do not find our purpose snapping in a hammock. We do not find our purpose swooshing down a ski slope. We do not find our purpose watching Netflix. Our purpose involves work. And, and work is not all that we were created for. <laughs> you know, there's, there's more to life than just work, but it is an important part of what we were created for. And of course, that doesn't mean that it's wrong to take a nap in a hammock or enjoy a day at the beach or, or, or a day on the slopes, but, but God wants us to enjoy a balanced life that includes work and play and relaxation. Even Jesus, during his years of ministry, uh, would occasionally withdraw from the public and go up into the mountains and, uh, and rest and recover uh, and get away from, from all the crowds. But then he always went back to work because he was sent to earth to do good work. And the same is true for us. We are here to do good work. Now, the curse of sin did make our work more difficult in a variety of ways, uh, but work itself is a good part of creation, and we will continue to have work to do, even in eternity. The idea that, uh, you know, in eternity we're just going to be like floating on a cloud and strumming a harp and not doing anything, uh, that is not the biblical idea of what uh, life will be like. Um, the Bible is not really very clear on exactly what our activities and what kind of work we'll be doing in eternity, uh, but we do get some indications, and it does show us that there will be work to do. For instance, in Jesus' parable about the talents at the end, uh, God's response to those who have done well is this. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. So because those servants have done well in this life with the things that God has entrusted to them, they are now given more work to do. Now, some of you might think that doesn't sound like a very great reward, but that's because you don't understand yet what the biblical attitude toward work is. Doing good work is a great thing. The work that God will give us in eternity will be very rewarding and good work. So that's one of our big ideas today, that work is an important part of what you were created for. And the second uh, big idea is why you do your work is more important than what you do. Another way to put that is that your attitude toward your work is more important than the specific tasks that you are doing. And one reason that this is an important point is that it's easier to see the meaning and purpose in some work than it is in other work, right? So if you're a kindergarten teacher and you're helping kids learn and grow to be good, happy, healthy people, it's not too hard to see the meaningfulness of that, right? You're impacting these lives and you're pouring your life into these kids and you're seeing them grow and learn. Um, or in my case, I've spent most of my life working in, uh, most of my working life doing church ministry, right? So I was a youth pastor for seven years. I was a missionary Bible college professor in Africa for 10 years. And now I've been a pastor back here in Alaska for more than 10 years. And it's not hard to see the meaningfulness of that kind of work, right? But um, that's not all that I have done. 
right? I have done other work occasionally. I was a commercial fisherman out in Bristol Bay for seven seasons. I was a server at Carson's Ribs in Chicago. I washed windows at businesses uh, in strip malls around the Chicago suburbs. Um, I worked as a construction contractor. I worked for a construction contractor. I drive limousines sometimes. Uh, and between my time in Africa and my first pastor job, I spent a summer with a landscaping company where I drove a mower and cut grass. So here's the question. Was there only value in the church work that I have done? Or was there also value in all of this other uh, non-religious work that I have also done? God absolutely cares about the work that I did when I was a fisherman or a server or, or a driving a mower. Why? Because that work mattered. As a fisherman, I was harvesting food from the sea to feed people. Or you could say I was ruling over the fish of the sea, right? Um, as a window washer, I was helping to maintain dozens of businesses that were helping people to flourish and to fill the earth and subdue it. And when I drove that walker mower, I was literally taming and subduing the earth to make beautiful places for people to live and work and, uh, and go about their business. Um, you know, uh, that work was also meaningful, and it matters to God. So it's easier to see that in some work than in other work, but if you think it through, you will find your purpose in your work, too. And if, you, if you're struggling to figure, what that, uh, figure out what that is, if you think about, yeah, but what I do is just kind of meaningless. Well, talk to somebody about it and think about how is your work really uh, meaningful and contributing and helping others. And I think that you'll be able to find that. And if you can't think of it yourself, talk to somebody else about it and help, have them help you. Um, and you will help uh, find how you can see how your work fits into the, God's plan for his people. So you may be a small cog in a much bigger machine uh, that accomplishes the really meaningful work, but that is a valid contribution. Um, when I mowed the lawns at the Valley Hospital in Palmer, I was not curing diseases or repairing injuries, or do, but I was part of the organization that was doing all those things. And that also is meaningful work. But even more important than the direct meaning of the exact tasks that you're doing is the attitude and approach that you bring to that work. So why you do your work is even more important than what it is that you do. And uh, we're given some great teaching on, on what our attitude toward work should be in the book of Colossians chapter 3. And so we're going to be in Colossians chapter 3 for a few minutes here now, starting with verse 22 where it says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Now, um, we've got to take a couple of minutes here to talk about that first word, right? Uh, because it says slaves. And this is a, uh, an instruction, and this whole section here in Colossians that we're going to be looking at here is dealing with slaves and their masters. 
And, um, and obviously that raises some pretty important questions in our minds. Why does the Bible here and in several other places too uh, seem to accept slavery instead of condemning it as an evil practice? And now um, here's the thing, as important as that question is, that actually is not our topic for today. So, um, so what we're going to do, I will say a few things about it, but uh, what I've done is I've posted on our church uh, Facebook page a link to an article from the Gospel Coalition that uh, gives a lot more detail about this questions relating to the Bible and slavery, and I encourage you to go and read that if this is, uh, if this is a troubling thing to you and you see that uh, description of slavery here, um, which it ought to be for a lot of you, then Take the time, get on Facebook and uh, find that article. If you are not on Facebook or something, let me know, I can help you find it. And then if, if that article's not enough, then uh, I encourage you to do some more research and uh, settle that question in your mind. Uh, there are answers out there and you just need to seek after them. But for now, I am gonna give a little bit of, um, of, of an answer for what's going on there. So the first thing to say is that the Bible teaches that all people regardless of their race, are made in the image of God and have an equal standing before God, right? And that's why the Bible says just a few verses up in the same chapter here in Colossians, it says, here there is no Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all, Right? And then very similarly in Galatians, the Bible says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So see, whatever slavery there might be, it is not um, a question of uh, some inferior race out there or something that we can enslave. Um, and then in the Old Testament law, in Exodus chapter 21, verse 16, um, it tells us that anyone who kidnaps someone and makes them a slave or uh, sells them as a slave is given the death penalty, according to the law of Moses. So laws like that show us that the, the, the slavery that is allowed um, is something different for, and, and in very significant ways than what we are most familiar with in our country with our, our own history of slavery in the United States, where they were grabbing people from Africa against their will and bringing them over and selling them as slaves. Uh, according to the law of Moses, uh, people who did that uh, should be executed. So whatever kind of slavery is going on here in the Bible, it is not that, right? So again, if you want to really uh, answer these questions about slavery, do some more research, uh, read that article. Um, Here's the point for our current discussion here today. Um, these instructions about work are given to slaves. And if slaves were to have these kinds of attitudes toward their work, how much more should we have good attitudes toward the work that we are doing? So let's look at that verse again. It says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. And do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. So the first part of that uh, biblical attitude toward work is that Christians should, all, should do what their boss is telling them to do. Right? If you are told to do a certain task in a certain way, do it. Um, don't cut corners. Don't refuse to do a job that you feel is 
uh, beneath your position. Of course, that doesn't mean you can never negotiate with your boss about the work you're doing, but if she tells you you have to do something, you need to do it. That's part of your approach to work. And look at the part after the semicolon which explains this first part. And do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. See, sometimes it's, it's tempting to work hard and do things by the book when your supervisor's watching. But when nobody's watching, well, then it's time to uh, slack off a little bit and cut corners and, uh, and, and, and do your work at a little more leisurely pace. But the Bible teaches that we are to work like the boss is watching all the time. And it gives the reason why. Christians are to work with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Your hard work is to be sincere and not just faked uh, to look good when someone is watching. Um, And all of this is to be done out of reverence to God because God cares about your work. God has given mankind work to do and your work is part of that. And God wants you to do a good job of it. And he is paying attention. So it's one thing to slack off when the boss is not watching. uh, But how much more contempt for your boss are you showing if you slack off right in front of him? Right? And so God has made us to do good work. And if we do our work poorly, he is watching and seeing what you're doing. And out of reverence for the Lord, we should do our work well. Next verse here says, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. So whatever you do, that means whatever kind of work it is that you're engaged in, right? And, and, and let's just be clear here uh, that these principles of work apply to what we might call uh, informal work uh, that we are not paid to do, just as much as it applies to paid jobs. So if you're a, a student, this applies to your schoolwork. And you can put the word teacher here in place of master and, uh, and think about doing your work for your your teacher. Uh, and, and the work that you guys do at home with your family is part of this too. Um, whether you go off to another job that you get paid for or not, the work that you do at home is part of the work that you are doing um, that God put you here to do. Um, so all that uh, work, raising kids, taking care of your house, cooking, cleaning, and all the rest of that stuff is also work that these principles all apply for. And if you think about it, really the creation mandate and God's gift of work for us, it predates the whole idea of money. So all the work that God had in mind when he gave the creation mandate was all unpaid work, (laughs) right? Money hadn't even been invented yet. So unpaid work definitely counts. And of course, this also uh, applies to those who are retired as well. There's still work that God has for you to do. 
You may not put in as many hours as you used to do, but there are meaningful things that God has planned for you to accomplish in this world even after uh, your paid career has come to an end. And really, ultimately, our work should never be about earning a paycheck, not primarily about earning a paycheck. So the fact that someone is not earning a paycheck, whether because they're retired or for whatever other reason, that does not mean that God is finished with you. It means that you have more flexibility to pursue the kinds of work that, that you feel God is, is calling you to do and that you can choose. But all of our work is to be done as working for the Lord and not for human masters. Because your boss is not your ultimate boss. God is. And your kids are not ultimately the ones you're cooking that meal for. God is. And your teacher is not the one you're ultimately writing that paper for. God is. And your students are not the ones you're ultimately preparing that lesson for. God is. And the Bible says here that your boss is not the one who will ultimately pay you for the work that you're doing. Right? You will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward for your work. And that might be especially meaningful for parents out there who are doing all these kinds of things uh, for their kids. And a lot of the time, your kids don't even show you very much appreciation for the things that you're doing, and they certainly don't pay you. So, but God will reward you, and God will give you an inheritance for the work that you're doing. Um, it says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters or teachers or kids or spouses since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ that you are serving. And this next verse here in Colossians is a warning about work. Verse 25 says, Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. So that last section that we have just been reading was written to the workers. And the next verse after this warning is written to the bosses. This one is the bridge connecting both groups. And it addresses both groups. It says, anyone who does wrong, whether slave or master, whether worker or boss, whether teacher or student, will be repaid for their wrongs. Repaid by who? clearly implied that God is the one who will repay the wrongdoing relating to our work. And that means that if we do bad work, not showing reverence to the Lord as we were just instructed to do, God will repay that wrong. However, the emphasis throughout the Bible is not on uh, the possibility that workers might not work well. The emphasis is about employers and their need to treat their workers well. Um, and if they do not, they will be repaid by God. And we see that uh, very strongly, for instance, in the book of James, where it says this. It says, Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have fattened yourselves in the days of slaughter. Or if we go back to the more general statement from Colossians, it says, anyone who does wrong 
will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Both the worker and the master who do wrong in this area of work will be repaid by God. And there is no favoritism toward either side. Last verse here from Colossians is chapter 4, verse 1, where it says, Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. So treating those who work for you in a way that is right and fair is also crucial biblical instruction. Those of us who have people who work for us must never take unjust advantage of our workers. Sometimes an employer can have a lot of power over the people that work for them. But a Christian must always remember that he also has an ultimate employer in heaven. And really, you're both ultimately working for God. And so all of us, even if we're the boss at work, are really workers. We are servants. Either to a human boss, as if there's someone higher up the, the chain in your own company, or maybe just for the clients that you're working for. Or for some of us who are really at the top of your organization, you're still ultimately responsible to God. So there's two main ideas that we've been talking about here today. First one is that your work is a good and important part of what God has put you on this planet to do. And yes, we were also created to worship God and enjoy fellowship with Him, but we were also put here to fulfill the mandate that He gave us in Genesis 1. Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. And rule over the rest of the creation. And the work that you do is a part of that mandate. It may be a small part. You may be a small cog in a big machine. But the, our work is fulfilling part of the purpose of God in our lives. And secondly, why you do your work or your attitude towards your work is more important than the specific tasks that you're doing. Christians must approach their work knowing that ultimately they're working for God and not for people. And we should always seek to honor God with the way that we do our work. So, as you do your small group study on this topic, or as you read the daily devotionals over this last uh, week of this series, find a good goal to be transformed in your vocational health over the next three months. And as we moved from uh, transformed into the next sermon series, and summer gets busy and everything else, keep those uh, goals in front of you. Find some way, you know, put them on some post-it notes and put them up somewhere in your house or something. Find a way to remember those goals, keep them in, in your mind, and work on those goals as we finish up these uh, three months of transformation. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good work that you've given us to do. We thank you for giving us the ability to do work and to to uh, accomplish so many things with our lives. I pray that uh, you would always uh, be reminding us that uh, you are our boss and that we are ultimately serving you in all the work that we do. May we do it with sincerity of heart 
out of reverence for the Lord. Amen.